around that time, uh, Luke says, uh, as the number of disciples increased, they're in growth, the Hellenists raised a dispute with the Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve called the whole crowd, whole crowd of disciples together. Listen, they said, it wouldn't be right for us to leave the word of God to wait on tables. So, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among yourselves who are well spoken of and filled with the Spirit and with wisdom. And we will put them in charge of what needs to be done in this matter. And we will continue to pay attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the whole gathering was pleased with what they said. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte from Antioch. They presented them before the apostles, who prayed and laid their hands on them, and the word of God increased. And the number of disciples in Jerusalem grew by leaps and bounds. This included a large crowd of priests who became obedient to the faith. You didn't have to translate those names, did you? Sorry about that, yeah. Okay, so the young church here in Acts has grown from, well, basically a couple of hundred uh, around the time of Pentecost. Firstly to 3,000 after Peter had preached on that day to something probably approaching 10,000 at this point in very short order. They were having to rapidly learn about this new life in the spirit that they were uh, encountering. They are busy in actively caring for and supporting each other. And they're facing threats and opposition from the religious leaders at the time. And last week we were reading that passage how Peter and John were thrown in jail, though they didn't stay there. Faced with those things, it's unsurprising that there's some stresses in that kind of growth. Okay, just a little bit of background uh, to help you uh, with the passage to understand it. Um, You heard me mention the Hellenists. Who the heck are the Hellenists? Well, the Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews. Folks from probably outside of the immediate uh, situation of Jerusalem uh, who'd been influenced by and largely adopted secular Greek culture Uh, and they spoke Greek. They were a minority within this young church. And then there were the Hebrews. Those are the Aramaic-speaking Jews, more traditional, and they would be in the majority in Jerusalem at this time. So there's the Greek-speaking ones, the Hellenists, and the uh, Aramaic-speaking ones. Uh, And the tension that arose in the church, as we've just read, was between those two groups. One was in the majority, the Aramaic ones, and the uh, Greek-speaking ones. And then what's this all about, the widows and the food distribution? Well, it was, there's no, nothing new under the sun. It's their version of the Lord's Larder, okay? So we understand. Uh, so uh, it was primarily, actually, for the, uh, the believers themselves rather than the community, which the Lord's Larder does. Um, but it was uh, a food program so that they were caring for each other. No one told them to do this. As far as I'm aware, it didn't fall under the auspices of YCST, but um, it was a similar sort of heart. And the widows that they were taking care of and making sure they had enough food parcels um, were a particularly vulnerable group at that time. 
And if you sort of cast your mind back into the Old Testament, you'll, you'll be aware that time and time again, the prophets were having to speak to the Jewish nation and say, it's really important that you look after the vulnerable people in society. And the, probably the primary group of vulnerable people was widows because they had no means of support at that time in that culture. Okay, so there was this vulnerable group, the widows, and some of them were from a Greek-speaking, some of them from Aramaic-speaking. So that's the background there. So just let me unpack a few themes that begin to emerge now and that we're going to see more and more as we go through the Acts of the Apostles. So here's, uh, here's a number of themes. Firstly, keeping in step with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit clearly is powerfully at work uh, in this young church and the disciples are having to get used to keeping in step with what he's doing amongst them. They'd had the Pentecost experience, tongues of fire. They'd seen some remarkable healings and miracles through the apostles particularly, but others also. Um, amazing things were going on. The Holy Spirit was doing remarkable things, giving them courage and witness and etc. But they were also having to learn that he was the Holy Spirit. So we had that situation with Ananias and Sapphira a few weeks back. He used the Holy Spirit not to be messed with. And then they are learning about challenging the powers. They were challenging specifically at this point the religious powers. Uh, and that was the arrest of uh, uh, the apostles. Uh, in fact, they got arrested twice in fairly short order and thrown in jail. Peter and John, we read last week, were uh, put in jail and then an angel let them out and then they get hauled before the Jewish leaders. So they were facing opposition and they were threatened and they were flogged, but they were undaunted. So they were challenging the powers. And the new community is just beginning to explore new changes. They were beginning to embrace change. It's just the start. There's much more to come, but they... They've been quick to take on the care of this vulnerable group, the widows that we talked about. And they've been spontaneously uh, finding ways to express their love and care for each other. No one told them to do this. It seems like a, a spontaneous welling up of mutual love and care and concern and support for each other. So they were, uh, they were having things in common. They were sharing their possessions. They were selling bits of land. And their purpose was to make sure that there was nobody in need amongst them. And we read in the uh, previous chapters... They were looking after each other really, really well. And there would be many, many more changes that they would need to embrace in the years to come, and we'll, cross, we'll, we'll encounter those as we move through Acts. The last of those reaching out further is a theme in Acts as well, but we haven't got there yet. They're still in Jerusalem, and that's where the church is focused. So let me just... Uh, touch on uh, a little bit of a reminder of where we got to last week. Oh, hello. There we go. We'll do that. So last week, um, Adam was sharing a couple of prophetic words uh, that uh, we'd been given to the church and its nation and, uh, and to YCC specifically, and they were really, really encouraging. Really encouraging about a new period of growth and influence and authority, Jan alluded to it uh, a few minutes ago. A time of acceleration, there's more things happening, a new time of authority, 
if, if there was ever a time to need to keep in step with the Spirit, just like this early church, we need to do that too. It's not so different from the situation we find here in Acts. The church here was unmistakably in a time of revival. Huge numbers of people coming to faith. Massive things going on. The Holy Spirit was moving. The kingdom was expanding. And there were some stresses. There were some strains. But if you remember, Adam also highlighted whether we're ready for what it costs. And that, I think, for many of us, was a salutary thing to be reminded of. What is it going to cost? And he quoted um, a phrase, uh, a little sentence, I think, that is very, very well worth our reflecting on again. Everyone loves the idea of justice, of revival, of a move of the spirit, of miracles, of expansion of the kingdom, until there's a cost. And then that lovely phrase, stay the course, be faithful. God is on the move. He was on the move here in Acts. He's on the move amongst us and other churches here and in this nation and in the Oval. And we need to keep in step with that, but we need to be aware of the cost. But as we go through this phase, as we're encouraged and excited about what God's doing, there are some things that we need to watch out for. When God is powerfully at work, we need to be alert to the risk of disunity. You see, Jesus had taught his, uh, his closest friends, the apostles, he taught them how central it was to be united. And he prayed for them. In, in John's Gospel, we read how he prayed that they may be one just as he was one with the Father and that his command was that they love each other. It was really important that they stay united. And in lots of ways, the church was doing well in this. They were caring for each other, as I've said. They were looking after each other. They had a food program that they were distributing. But we need to understand that we will face opposition, and it's not all just from human sources. Though, yes, the, uh, the early church here had been uh, struggling with opposition from the Jewish leadership, but also we have a spiritual opposition. And one of the favorite things that the enemy loves to do when God is on the move is to just sow a little bit of disunity. Just to foster a little bit of resentment, a little bit of bad feeling, a little bit of annoyance and grumbling between the fellowship. And so that was what was happening here in Acts. So the, uh, the Greek-speaking widows were getting overlooked. And in, in the distribution of the food for them. And this was causing some grumbling. There was some resentment. And if there's one thing that will quench the Holy Spirit when he is at work powerfully in a church here or here in Yeovil or back in Acts or any place else, it is when there is disunity beginning to fester in the church. And we need to be alert to that, we need to watch out for that. Paul says in, in Ephesians 4, make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We have to work at it. It's not automatic. It won't just happen. We have to work at it. We have to strive, work to maintain 
the unity that God gives us, because the enemy will seek to undermine it, because that's a way that he could derail what God is doing. He can derail this move of the Holy Spirit. If he can get us pulling in different directions, resentments growing between us, little niggles, it will quench the Holy Spirit and undermine what he's seeking to do. And so in this situation here in Acts, one group was being overlooked in the distribution of food. Now, some translations actually say they were being discriminated against. I suspect it wasn't necessarily deliberate. may have been, but probably not. But they were just being overlooked. How do people get overlooked? Well, you know what it's like. It's more like thoughtlessness. You see, we tend to focus on those that we know well, those that we, who are like us, those that we, you know, we've walked with, known for years and years and years. They're just the same as us, same you know, social class or whatever else. Um, we've known them. They're our friends. They're our mates. And we tend to focus on those. The problem with that, and there's nothing wrong with loving those people, but the problem is that we can then overlook the other ones. So, you know, if you're not sure about that, just watch yourself at the end of this service when you have coffee. Who will you most readily go and chat with? And we tell you this, I tell it to myself as well, you know, every week pretty much, you know, if you see somebody who's new, somebody you don't recognise or somebody you don't know very well at all, go and talk to them when there's a space to do so, like over coffee. And, and we try, but the reality is we tend to keep with those we know, our good friends. We like to talk to them. And it's not wrong to do that, but the risk is that people get overlooked. So who might be the overlooked amongst us? Let's just pause for a minute and think about that. Here this morning, or who are part of the wider YCC community. Can you stop and think? Who do you think might be getting overlooked? Who might be getting overlooked and what are we going to do about it and how can we address that? It may just be a simple hello. Just a simple conversation. Just to make them feel not overlooked. And we need to work at that because that's one of the ways that we can um, resist this attack, this opposition that leads to disunity in the fellowship. Another thing that the, uh, the enemy will do very quickly to try and derail and block what God is doing is he'll get us all tied up with priorities and distractions. And when things are busy, when there's growth happening in the church, as here, growing to 10,000 people in virtually no time at all, it gets very busy and we can get distracted. And the apostles freely admit they're getting a bit distracted. And distraction is another of the prime weapons that the enemy uses to block a new work of God. And it's a typical result of the stresses that come with growth. Um, we went away as a leadership team um, a little while ago, six weeks ago or whatever. Um, went down to Upcott, had a good time. Well, the beds aren't great, but had a good time. Um, and one of the key phrases that came up over the weekend, and it's, it's not original, I'm well aware of that, um, but was that we increasingly needed to know 
and to make the main thing the main thing. You've probably heard that phrase, you know, the main thing is to make the main thing the main thing. And each of us needs to increasingly know what is our main thing. What is it that God wants us specifically to do? Because if we don't do that, we get distracted by doing a million other things. So the question then is, what's your main thing under Jesus? Now, of course, we'll do lots of things, and we, that's entirely appropriate. There's you know, loads and loads of things we have to do. We can't just say, I, I only do that. No, but we do need to increasingly know, amongst the various things I need, what is the primary thing? What is God specifically calling me to do? Because if we're not sure about what the primary thing is, then you can, sure as eggs is eggs, the enemy will ensure that that's the one thing that we don't ever do. We will get distracted, diverted from the priorities that the Holy Spirit has for us if we don't really recognise what they are. And when we do that, we neglect stuff. And so the apostles here in Acts were saying, look, it's, they, they woke it up to the fact they'd been trying to administer this food programme along with everything else, and it was just too much for them, and they were getting distracted. And so it's not right for us to neglect the word of God. So let's just pause for a minute and let's think individually now. What are the things that might be getting neglected because our priorities are getting distracted, are getting screwed up, are, we're getting distracted with too many other things? Just pause for a minute and think. Close your eyes if you want to. Um, just think, what is it that God has particularly called you to make a priority? What's he called you to make a priority of? Are you getting distracted from that? Is that getting neglected in the mass of other things that you're trying to cover? Because that's a work of the enemy to distract us and to divert the work of God, this new move of God that was happening here in Acts, that God is wanting to do amongst us, we will, if we're not careful, get distracted. The apostles here understood their chief priority was the word of God and prayer. What about us? We'll all have different priorities, different specific areas of service that God's called us to, but we need to know what they are. Because if we don't have a clear grasp of the main thing, then the enemy will ensure that that's the one thing we don't do. But when we talk about that, we just need to be a bit careful. Because the way that we read this passage can sometimes be misunderstood. You could read this passage, and it could sound a bit like the apostles are saying, Look, guys, we're doing the spiritual work, which is the really important stuff. We're not going to be bothered with just serving at tables. That doesn't really, you know, not important enough. That's not what they are saying. This is not a matter of status, that my job is more important than your job. The apostles are not even saying their role of giving themselves to the word of God and prayer is more important than waking at tables. They're just saying it's not my priority it's not the thing that I've got to be doing, what they've got to be doing. And you know that because of the word that is used. So, when it comes to 
serving at tables or administering the food programme or whatever you want to call it, but it actually technically, uh, the, the translation is serving tables, serving the food programme. The word used there is diakoneo. It means serving. And that is exactly the same word for serving the word. When they say the ministry of the word, you know, we need to give ourselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. Of course, ministry sounds such a spiritual thing. It sounds such a sort of, you know, that's, that's really, are you in ministry? It just means service. It's the same word. So are you serving the word? Is that your priority? Or are you serving the food program? Is that your priority? It's not a status thing. We're just all called to serve. And we have our unique gifts and abilities and talents and capacities at a particular point in time. It's one of the reasons that we have on our banner over there, serving. As one of the dimensions, one of the core values of YCC is serving. So it's not a status thing. It's just serving in the area that God's called us to. And Jesus makes it clear that humble, practical service, like washing people's feet, which he, he did, is never beneath us. It's never something that, oh, I couldn't do that. And if you're still not sure about whether these things are sort of, you know, those who do practical service, is it really as important? Then just take a minute and let's explore the qualifications for service. Okay, so what do the apostles say is necessary? Well, they say for the people, the, choose seven people and they've got to be widely respected. Widely respected, oh, okay. They've got to be full of the Holy Spirit for doing the food program. And they've got to be full of wisdom. Those are pretty much the same qualifications that you'll read of in Paul's letter to Timothy when he's talking about church leadership. Widely respected, having a good reputation with, with those outside the church and, and widely. Full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom. Pretty much a leadership qualification. But all they're being asked to do, I say all inverted commas, is administer the food programme. That's why I say it's not a question of one thing being more important. It is how are we individually at this moment in time called to serve? At the risk of embarrassing him, which I can't do because he's not here, I would like to affirm and commend Matt Callahan. He, sorry, Steph, you'll have to pass this on to him. He leads our food program, Lord's Larder, and the wider work of YCST. And here's a man who is very widely respected in our community. Here's a man who has lots of wisdom. And here's a man whom I trust and work with because I know he's full of the Holy Spirit. That's the sort of people we need in all areas of service. I want to commend Matt specifically because it's relevant because he's running a food program. 
But we need that in all our areas of serving. Whatever practical work, whether it's in children's ministry or whether it's setting up the coffee for the admin team, thank you guys, you're great. Whether it's doing the AV and PA stuff, whether it's the worship team, whether it's the signers, whether it's out in the community stuff, you know, a million and one things. Practical ways of serving. We want you to be widely respected, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom. And it's worth just noting the wisdom that uh, the community there in Acts 6 showed in choosing these people. The people they, came, they chose, uh, whose names I won't repeat because Coralie won't want to sign them all, but they chose seven men to do this work. And actually, the names of these guys make it clear they were all from the Greek-speaking community. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? Of course, there's a bit of resentment amongst the Greek-speaking community because their widows aren't here. Who should we put in charge of it? We'll put some really spirit-filled, wise and well-respected people from the Greek-speaking community. That's a sensible thing to do. It's lovely when churches do sensible things. Um, not always, sadly, but that's a great advantage. So although there is no difference in status between different areas of ministry, whether you see it as a spiritual or a practical one, there is a clear lesson to learn. And that's this, that practical ways of serving are a key pathway to personal growth. Just pause and think about that for a bit. Practical ways of serving, they are a key pathway to personal growth. In 1 Timothy 3, we read these verses about those who serve in the church. Those who serve well gain great boldness in their faith, or in the faith. And you may have seen it, I've certainly seen it time and time again. People who choose freely, willingly, gladly to serve in relatively, what may appear, simple, practical ways their growth curve goes amazing. They begin to grow spiritually. Their gifts flourish and expand. They, they grow beyond the purely practical that they were doing into wider ministry, wider service. And it's beautiful to see. And you see that, of course, here in Acts with these seven. Now, we don't know anything about most of them. We only know it a little bit, about two of them. We know a bit about Stephen, briefly. The whole of the next chapter is given to Stephen, who um, uh, was uh, doing some amazing work with um, uh, uh, miracles and healings. God was doing amazing signs through him, and that was fantastic. And then he gets arrested, and he preaches this amazing sermon for the whole of Acts, I think, chapter 8, I think it is. Um, no, no, 7. Um, amazing sermon he preaches to the uh, Jewish leaders, really telling them what's what, and gets stoned for it to death. He was the first martyr in the church. That makes you want to run a food program, doesn't it? 
But look at his growth. Doing amazing miracles, amazing signs, preaching amazingly, and becoming the first martyr of the church. And then Philip is the other guy we know a little bit about. Not much, but he's in the next chapter, in chapter 8, when he goes off and uh, follows the Holy Spirit's prompting to go up and meet this Ethiopian eunuch, lead him into allegiance to Jesus, um, and then disappears someplace else. And later on in Acts, in uh, later chapters, we, we read of Philip that he became known as Philip the Evangelist and was known for having four, four daughters who were uh, prophetically gifted as well. So here's somebody who started on a food program and becomes an evangelist and well-known throughout the early church. The point I'm making is we can all think of examples of people we know who start on simple things and God uses them. So I would just encourage you, look around. Where can you serve? doesn't have to be big, complex, massively spiritual looking, where can you serve? Because when you give yourself to that, it's a pathway to personal growth. And I've seen it in so many people's lives. I was talking to somebody on Friday who witnessed exactly the same thing. People step into an area of practical serving and God just expands them and expands them and they become even more significant, even more effective, even more have more authority in the kingdom. It's, it's great to see. Think about that one. Think about how you can serve. And then just, I just want to uh, go back to, to one more thing. There are two words or phrases that we find in this passage recurring time and time again. The first of those is serving, which is what I've just been talking about. Time and again, it's serving, serving, ministry, serving the word, serving food, a practical ministry. But the other phrase that occurs time and again is the phrase, the word of God. So the apostles don't want to neglect the word of God. They want to give their focus to the ministry of the word. And then the last verse talks about the word of God increasing, flourishing and multiplying. What does it mean when we're talking about the word of God in that context? Sometimes when we use that phrase, we're talking about the Bible, we're talking about you know, the scriptures. And that makes sense and is, is true, but it's not what it means here. We didn't actually have the Bible in that sense. What we're talking about is the message concerning the crucified and resurrected Jesus. And when they talk about the word of God, they're talking about this message of the crucified and resurrected Jesus, declaring that he is the rightful king of all creation, summoning each person to give allegiance to him, and teaching the truths that he'd entrusted to them. That's what they meant. That was the word of God that they were talking about and that they had to focus on declaring that Jesus, the crucified and resurrected Jesus, is the rightful king of all creation, summoning each person to give allegiance to him and teaching the truths that he had entrusted to them. You see, sometimes I think we get a little bit embarrassed about being too explicit about our faith. 
And maybe we kind of draw back from talking too much about Jesus. We maybe dress it up in other words. But if I could quote you a few things from the, just the previous two or three chapters, where the, the apostles talk about how God raised Jesus and exalted him, how God made Jesus the one that they crucified, both Lord and Messiah, how it was in the name of Jesus that this person got up and walked. God has brought glory to his servant Jesus, they declared. You, they say, have killed Jesus, the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. Faith in the name of Jesus is what heals this other person. God raised Jesus from the dead after you killed him, they say. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they continued to teach and preach the message, Jesus is the Messiah. We need to understand that Jesus is the heart of our message. And we don't need to be embarrassed about that. Maybe we find it a bit culturally awkward to talk about Jesus. Yeah, sometimes it can be. Maybe we feel it's a bit philosophically unsophisticated. You know, we'd like to talk about more trendy-sounding things. Maybe it is, perhaps. Some people would say it's too intellectually simplistic just to talk about Jesus. I mean, you know, can we talk about something a bit more impressive-sounding? Some might say that. And yet this word, this word about the crucified and resurrected Jesus has turned the whole world upside down. Paul was in a very culturally diverse city who prided themselves on philosophical sophistication and intellectual smarts. And he says this, When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I didn't come proclaiming the mystery of God with lofty words or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified and I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not with plausible words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith may not rest on human wisdom, but on the power of God. Can I have the band up, um, please? So let's just think at this season, at this time, at this period, when we're sensing that God is on the move, God is doing amazing and remarkable things, let's just be alert to the risk of disunity. Are there people that you're getting a little bit antsy with and that you need to sort that out? Because the enemy will use that to derail the work of God. Are you getting distracted? Do you even know what it is the main thing that he's calling you to do? Is there some practical area of serving that you can get involved in? Because that's a pathway to growth. And let's always keep Jesus at the centre. Unapologetically, let's keep Jesus at the centre. Because, as the scriptures say, there is salvation in no one else but Jesus. God has given no other name under heaven and among men by which we must be saved. So let's worship this Jesus. Vicky, take us on from there. <laughs>